0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're talking about Shaka Zulu, a man responsible for completely rebranding the Zulu tribe of Africa from a subservient culture into the dominant people of Southern Africa. He is most well known for being one of the fiercest and most powerful conquerors in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, outside of European colonization. I'm sorry that it's taken until the middle of this second grouping of episodes to do an episode about an African ruler who wasn't from Egypt, and sorry for still not having covered a South American ruler while I'm at it. Shaka is definitely a very big start for African rulers outside of Egypt. Also, even if the name might sound familiar to you, It's probably very likely you never learned about him in school unless you actually live in South Africa or studied Zulu culture in school. Also, also, I am trying my absolute best with all the names in this episode. But enough about all that. There's a lot going on with Shaka and a lot more we're going to have to learn before we get to him. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the turn of the 19th century in Southern Africa in Shaka Zulu and the Great Crushing. Let's begin with learning a bit about the area Shaka lived in and eventually ruled. We're sitting in the Methathwa Paramountcy, a confederation of tribes living in what is, in present day, a southeastern province of the nation of South Africa called KwaZulu-Natal. And what is a confederation, for those who may be wondering? It's basically a league of states or groups that are bound together to form a single union. There is usually a weak form of central government, meaning that each state is usually more independent and free to do what it wants. The central power of the Mthethwa paramountcy was the Mthethwa tribe. The obvious example of a confederation coming to your mind is probably the Confederate States of America but more modern-day examples include the European Union and even Canada. Also, the United States was a confederation back before the Constitution was ratified. But we're not talking about America, we're here for Africa. The tribes that made up the Methethwa Paramountcy, which you might sometimes see referred to as the Methethwa Empire, were mostly descended from the Nguni people a very ancient ethnic group in Africa that migrated into southern Africa around 7,000 years ago. All of these tribes spoke some form of language derived from the Bantu family of languages. The most common Bantu language is Swahili, though this group also includes the Xhosa and Zulu languages. In its native tongue, Methathwa translates to the one who rules. These tribes were usually formed through a patrilineal line of chiefs. If an influential male member of a tribe did not like how things were going, he could go off and attempt to start a new tribe himself. His success was obviously determined by if people actually followed him and other tribes allowed his people to coexist within the confederation. The tribes also practiced exogamy, in this case meaning a male member of a tribe would marry a woman from a different tribe the other tribe would receive a number of cattle of what was determined as equal value to the wife. Bridehead prices are always a weird and kinda gross concept to think about, but I don't particularly feel qualified to lead a discussion on that, so let's set aside that topic for now. Let's also step aside from the Methethwa as a whole to talk about the Zulu tribe, which was Shaka Zulu's tribe if that was not obvious enough. The Zulu tribe was founded by Zulu Ka Malandela, and the tribe name in the Zulu language means heaven. The tribe was founded when Zulu Ka Malandela's father, King Malandela, died and split the kingdom between his two sons, thus forming the Zulu and Kowabi tribes. And even though King Zulu would have ruled over the tribe named after him, the Zulu tribe is usually listed as truly being founded at King Zulu's death in 1709. Since many of the other tribes in the Methethwa Paramountcy were larger than the Zulu, the Zulu people were never really considered much of a powerhouse within the area. But the Zulu did not stay powerless for long within the Methethwa Paramountcy. In fact, the confederation overall was fairly short-lived, lasting only from 1718 to 1817. The larger tribes in the area would soon be put under the thumb of a very unlikely man who turned the land into his very own nation. It would become the Zulu Kingdom, led by the one and only Shaka Zulu himself. His name at birth was not Shaka Zulu, but Sigiri Senzan Gakona. He was born sometime in July of 1787 within the Methethwa Paramountcy to Senzan Zakona, chief of the Zulu people, and Nandi, a daughter of a chief of the Langani tribe. However, his parents were said to be unmarried, and baby Sigiri was not granted the right to claim Senzan Zakona as his father. And if you're wondering where the name Shaka comes from, apparently his father claimed that Nandi was not in fact pregnant with his child. He instead insisted she was experiencing abdominal pains due to ingesting the Ishaka Beetle, an intestinal bug. But despite that… Nah, I can't even joke that it was a happy relationship because it wasn't. Senzan Zakona eventually took Nandi into his home as his third wife, and even then, things were still unhappy, and Shaka's mother was expelled from his father's court. From then on, young Shaka was raised by his mother's people rather than the Zulu, his father's. His childhood is not documented very well, but most stories seem to lend to the fact that Shaka was probably bullied and ridiculed by the other children for not having a father figure in his life, which proves that kids from any time or place are really just rude. During a famine in 1802, Shaka and his mother moved to his aunt's home within a village of the Mthethwa tribe. This tribe was ruled by a chief named Dengiswayo whose father was the founder of the Methethwa Paramountcy, Chief Dengiswayo was said to be a very powerful leader who, after coming into contact with a tribe under the command of European officers, introduced horses and guns to his tribe, as well as invoking European military-style tactics in his warfare against other tribes. The main tribe Dengiswayo was often at war with was the Ndwandwi people, another Nguni-descended tribe ruled by Chief Zuide. Zuide was a military genius who helped build the Nduandui people into a force that rivaled the Mithithwa paramountcy. Due to the constant struggle for power within the area of present-day KwaZulu-Natal, Chief Dengiswayo needed all the help he could get if he was to find victory against the Nduandui people. Luckily, a certain young man denied a place among his father's people had recently grown up and was ready to join the Mithethwa army. Now as an adult, Shaka was said to be powerfully built and taller than most of the other young men in his age group. With his size and a mind built for strategy, Shaka joined the Mithethwa military and quickly showed that he was meant for greatness. It did not take long for his courage on the battlefield to get noticed by Chief Dengiswayo, and not long after getting his chief's attention, Shaka was promoted to one of the chief's foremost military commanders. He was given a new name, Noduna Mlezi, meaning the one who, when seated, causes the earth to rumble. Then, in 1816, Chief Senzan of the Zulu, Shaka's father, passed away. Shaka's half-brother, Sigujana, ascended as chief of the Zulu people. There's not much information out here about Sigujana's life or how he ruled his people, but for kind of a fair reason. As leader of the Methethwa Paramountcy, Dengaswayo would want and need all the help he could get from the other tribes in the confederation. What better way to ensure loyalty when needed than to put someone you really trust in the seat of power in one of those tribes? Oh and hey, didn't one of his most powerful military commanders say that he was also a son of the recently deceased Zulu chief? I mean, that gave him just as much of a right to rule as Sigujana, right? Dengiswayo gave Shaka the resources necessary to take Sigujana out of the picture. From here, I found a couple different courses of action that Shaka might have taken, though everyone seems to agree that it was a mostly bloodless affair. Some people say that Shaka hired an assassin to kill his half-brother. Others say that Shaka himself stabbed his brother to death. Another account is that Shaka received the help of another half-brother, they were both sons of Nandi, named Nguani, in killing Sigujana. No matter what the truth may really be, Sigujana was killed, and Shaka was placed on the throne as chief of the Zulu people. No drawn-out war, no fuss about it even the Zulu people seemed to be in general agreement that Shaka was a good leader for the tribe. And despite being a vassal tribe to the Methethwa, Dengaswayo gave Shaka more freedom of control than any other tribe within the confederation. Shaka used this power to conquer several neighboring groups, including the Langeni people of his mother, thus getting revenge on all those boys who made fun of him in his youth for not having a father. Yep. Life was good in the Methethwa Paramount Sea. had a powerful military ally who was still proving he had what it took even as chief of the Zulu, and Shaka could go on conquering to his heart's content. That is, until the Ndwandwi attacked again and killed (laughs) Dengaswayo. According to the diary of Henry Francis Finn, a British surgeon turned traveler in South Africa who was one of the first Europeans to meet Shaka Zulu, Dengiswayo's death was at the fault of his pupil, specifically Shaka's refusal to join in the fighting until it was too late. More modern historians consider this to be a false account. But it does paint half the truth in that Shaka did not arrive on the battlefield between the Methethwa and the Duandui until after Dengiswayo had been kidnapped by Chief Zuide. After his capture, Dengiswayo was murdered, which led to a collapse in the power structure of the Methethwa Paramountcy. Shaka did what he did best and quickly began taking control of the surrounding tribes that had previously made up the Paramount. Sea. The Zulu would no longer be a minor tribe, but the main leadership in the territory. He introduced new combat mechanics into the mix, including the very important Ikulwa, a shorter version of the usual Nguni throwing spear. The name is apparently an anima word for the sound the spear made when being pulled out of a person's body. Gross. This shorter spear allowed more versatility with close-range combat and was able to be held in just one hand. Combined with a cowhide shield on the soldier's other arm, Shaka's army was the most advanced among the tribes of southern Africa. In 1818, Shaka and Zuide finally clashed to see which tribe would be the new leaders of the region. The Ndwandwe had the upper hand with the numbers. It's estimated that Zwide's forces numbered around 12,000. Meanwhile, Shaka and his allies numbered somewhere around 5,000. But despite being outnumbered over 2 to 1, Shaka's troops had better strategies and weapons. The two armies met in April at Kakokli Hill, near present-day Alundi, South Africa. The end results were an embarrassment for Zwide. The Ndwandwi lost 7,500 soldiers, about five-eighths of their forces. Meanwhile, the Zulu only lost 2,000, under less than half of their army. So Wide also lost several of his sons in what is now called the Battle of Gokokli Hill. He had underestimated Shaka, but he would attempt to correct that error, and thus began the Ndwandwi-Zulu War and along with it the mfecane meaning the crushing the mfecane was a massive event that forever changed the structure of south and central africa during the early 19th century shaka zulu is traditionally placed at the very heart of the conflict but what was the mfecane aka the crushing it all boils down to a series of wars and conquests that forced a mass migration out of the region. Remember when I said that shotgun and his mother moved in with the Mthethwa because of a famine? That famine was caused by a drought that was spreading across southeastern Africa. The famine was intensified due to the introduction of maize to the local population by Portuguese travelers. That's maize, the vegetable also known as corn, not the labyrinth it would be a wild story if a labyrinth was the downfall of a region of the world not even david bowie had that power unless i missed some massive music related event in history maize requires much more water than the native grains of southern africa but in turn it provided a much larger yield if grew properly if you wanted a better harvest you need the resources in order to make that harvest happen i.e You needed water in a drought. This time period also happened to coincide with an increased population boom among the Nguni tribes. With a larger population needing a scarce resource, tribes either needed to leave in order to find new lands to call home or take the lands with proper resources by force. Both of these created a massive refugee crisis, which just continued to perpetuate the cycle. So why is Shaka placed in the middle of all this? Well, he happens to lead a tribe that is growing at a substantial rate through military conquest. But there are differing schools of thought when it comes to who is actually to blame for the Mefekane. Modern Zulu historians tend to place the blame on Zuide and the Nduandui tribe. After all, they used to be a massive powerhouse within the region and had previously been the conquering force. Other modern historians also point to the obvious European factor. The 19th century was a period of massive European colonization within southern Africa, which also led to the obvious addition of increased ivory and slave trading, which further shook up the region. So yes, while Shaka was basically an unstoppable force at this point who was plowing through his enemies and weaker tribes, he was far from the only source for the Mfecane. Speaking of that, let's catch up with Shaka. After the Battle of Kokkli Hill, Shaka and the Zulu continued to pummel the Ndwandwe. In 1820, Shaka finally pushed back Zuide at the Battle of Malatsu River. And apparently, after the battle but before news reached Zuide's people, Zulu soldiers snuck into Zuide's encampment under the guise of Ndwandwe soldiers singing victory songs before causing further conflict. Zuide escaped Shaka's forces, but later died under mysterious circumstances while hiding out in another tribe. Six years later, in 1826, Zuide's successor as chief of the Ndwandwe waged his own series of battles against Shaka and the Zulu. Unfortunately for the Ndwandwe, this was their last hurrah. They were utterly defeated forcing most to surrender to the might of the Zulu or join other refugees displaced by the Mfecane. Some of these Ndwandwe refugees established their own tribes further north, becoming what they called the Ngoni tribes. After fighting with Shaka for about 8 years, these people had learned Zulu war tactics and used them to conquer tribes further north, even further, perpetuating the Mfecane. All in all, No one is entirely sure how many people lost their lives due to the Mefikane. There are estimates that it could be well over one million, all at the cost of war over resources. I've said before that I'm not super big into talking about war and military tactics on this show, But Shaka Zulu's story is basically how he revamped the Zulu military process and turned them into a major armed force. So let's talk about how he changed the military. First, he created an age bracket system called the Amabutho. This system was put in place for both men and women of Zulu society and the tribes they conquered. For men, they were taken at a young age and placed in an Amabutho to become brothers in arms for the army. They would live in one of the royal households throughout Shaka's territory, and let's be honest, at this point it had become the Zulu Empire, though most will refer to it as a kingdom rather than an empire. The men were put through rigorous training exercises, all of which were allegedly done without the use of footwear. There are accounts that a man who could not run through his training without sandals was put to death. Yeah, we're getting into that sort of territory with this story. Shaka would push his men on continuous training and military campaigns until he deemed them proper men of his society. At this point, the amabutho would be dissolved and the men were allowed to return to their villages and get married. The amabutho for young women acted as wards of King Shaka. Their role was to perform dances and other roles and ceremonies. When a male amabutho was dissolved, A female Amabutho of a similar age was also dissolved so that the men and women could marry off. Until then, no relationships were allowed. And, as with sandals, this was punishable by death. The other major military reform that Shaka made and, besides the short spears he implemented, perhaps his most famous is the formation he made for combat. Soldiers were separated into four different groups. The first and main group of soldiers was called the Chest. This was a large group of soldiers, usually senior-ranking men, that would push forward to engage the enemy in combat. This made room for two other groups called the horns, usually made of younger soldiers who were faster than their elders. The horns would close in on the sides after the chest engaged the enemy. If all went well, the enemy would be trapped between the chest and horns. But if things didn't go well, that's why Shaka had a fourth group called the Loins. The Loins stood behind the chest with their backs to their fellow soldiers. This was so they did not lose confidence if they saw their fellow soldiers in trouble. Their role was to reroute the enemy should they find a way to break out from the chest and horn trap. And with this strategy, Shaka continued with victory upon victory as he had against the His enemies were either subjugated or wiped off the map. Tribes that submitted to the Zulu Empire were even sometimes allowed to keep their chiefs. Other times, Shaka would appoint his own choice from the tribe's ruling family. But it did not take too long for things to change. There's more to Shaka's life than just warfare. As mentioned earlier, the 19th century was a period of European expansion in Africa, it was not long before white men came across the Zulu king. For a man who spent much of his life waging war against other tribes to the point where he was known as a tyrant in some circles, and I'm not going to say I disagree to some regard, Shaka took a very interesting stance on European travelers in his lands. In the mid-1820s, Europeans arrived in the Zulu Empire, by this point known as Zululand. Shaka's territory spread across a sizable chunk of the east coast of present-day South Africa. A British colony was beginning to develop out of Port Elizabeth, a town that still exists in South Africa, though it now has a name in Xhosa, though I will not even try to pronounce it because I can't do the clicking sounds of that language. In 1824, the Europeans came to visit the King of the Zulus. Among them were Henry Francis Finn, the surgeon I mentioned earlier, and Francis Farewell, who would become the founder of the Port Natal colony. Finn at one point would actually go to perform surgery on Shaka after a botched assassination attempt by one of his tribesmen. After recuperating, Shaka allowed European activity within the borders of his empire. Finn's diary accounts, along with the writings of another man named Nathaniel Isaacs, would be some of the earliest accounts of Shaka from a European perspective. This perspective, however, was of a madman as king who desired nothing but degeneracy and conquest. You know, typical white colonizer ideas of people of color. The next year, in 1825, Shaka would allow further expansion of European colonization and ceded them the land that would become Port Natal, the present-day city of Durban. In 1826, Shaka then built a new military barracks for his people close to Port Natal so he could be closer to the European settlers. The Zulu king took quite an interest in these newcomers, especially their technology and military tactics. However, No matter what the Europeans showed off for Shaka, he would always say that the Zulus' technology and tactics were superior. It should also be noted that Shaka never entered into conflict with the white colonizers during his reign. The Zulus and Europeans remained on fairly good terms during their small part of history. But just because things were good with the Europeans did not mean everything was alright on the home front. In fact, things were about to go real bad real quick. Shaka's mother Nandi died in October of 1827. Shaka took her death very hard and immediately became unstable. He quickly set about creating new rules to usher in a period of mourning for his deceased mother. Here are some of the insane new policies Shaka had in mind. No crops would be planted for the entire year. There would be no consumption of milk either. This one was especially hard because milk was one of the bases for most Zulu meals. And there would absolutely be no pregnancies. Any woman found pregnant would be killed along with her husband. This pregnancy prohibition also extended to cows, although Shaka had the mother cow killed after giving birth so that... And I'm not making this up, the baby calf could feel the pain he felt at losing a mother. Shaka's punishment was brutal on his people, and it's alleged that around 7,000 Zulu people were killed during the time these rules existed. Needless to say, Shaka's subjects did not take too kindly to these new laws. According to Zulu oral tradition, a tribesman named Gala one day approached Shaka and bluntly objected to these policies by saying that Nandi was not the first Zulu to die. Apparently Gala's words hit home for Shaka and he changed his mind about the laws for mourning. But his change of mind came too little too late. There had been previous attempts in the past to assassinate Shaka, but in September of 1828. Two of Shaka's half-brothers and one of his bodyguards stabbed him to death near one of his military barracks. The great king's last words were apparently a warning to the men that they would never rule these lands. No, the Europeans would one day take the place of the Zulu. If Shaka's last words were in fact a prophecy about European colonization taking over Zululand, then obviously he was right. But that didn't mean the Zulu would go down without a fight. The Zulu would remain wary of white settlers within their lands and came to blows with the Dutch settlers several times. This all came to a head in 1878 with the Anglo-Zulu War between the British and the people of Zululand. The war was instigated by the British, specifically a man named Sir Henry Bartle Frere, who gave the Zulu an ultimatum, disband their armies and allow the British control of the land, or go to war and die. Though the Zulu would eventually go on to lose the war and live under British occupation, they had one great last stand at the Battle of Isan de Luana. Using the tactics that had been crafted and honed by Shaka Zulu, The people of Zululand beat the British and killed nearly 1,000 of their soldiers in one day. It remains one of the most crushing defeats of the British against the native African peoples with what the British would call lesser technology. But though the Zulu Kingdom would lose against the colonizers, that is not the end of their story. The tribe made great by the conquering hand of Shaka Zulu is the largest native ethnic group living in South Africa, with around 14 million people claiming Zulu ancestry. And the Zulus still have a king, though it is more of a ceremonial figurehead at this point. In fact, the current Zulu king, Misuzulu Zulu, Zulu, was very recently appointed in May of 2021 after the passing of his father, Goodwill Zwelithini, in March. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, it's back to Rome for another installation of the Julio-Claudian saga. We're starting at Julius Caesar's rise to power along with his friends Pompey and Crassus as they form the first triumvirate.